0: to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. As members of Christ's body, we thank you for... Your spirit, which is at work in us. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. That you would open up our eyes to see your truth in this word, in your word, Lord. And you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and grasp these truths. That we might know you better and more clearly. That we might pick up a cross and follow Christ with great passion, that we would come to understand your mercy and grace in a fresh way, that it might affect the way in which we live out our lives for your glory. Lord, I ask that you would please surprise and delight us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I've gotten older, And by that I mean I'm 44, I know I haven't reached 60 and that yet, but I also know I'm not 20-something, and so I've been saved for a little over 20 years now, and as I've gotten older and I've realized some things, and one of the things I've realized is that most people, including myself, learn best by living life and experiencing the ups and downs of life, especially through failure. Failure has this way of just getting our attention. I'm going to assume that that you agree that when you win it's it's exciting but it's typically when you lose whether it's a sporting event or it's just something in life that uh, you didn't achieve what you hoped to achieve or wanted to achieve and in the midst of that failure you begin to sort of ask a lot of questions and analyze uh, what went wrong. I'm going to assume not all of you, maybe you don't do that, but my mind works that way. When I fail at things in this life, I just start to ask a bunch of questions once I get by that sort of worthless feeling. And sometimes that worthless feeling just hangs longer than I would like, but I've also learned that it's, it's a means of God's grace to us. Now this is not my preference, hasn't been my preference. I would much rather be able to read God's word or go back to that bookstore and pick up a book on marriage or parenting or some other aspect of life and just be able to read it and have it work its way into my mind and into my heart and then just live it out perfectly you know so you, you you do premarital counseling and i and i wish that that just sitting down and going through premarital counseling over 20 some years ago would have just had this amazing effect upon my life where i just really loved my wife as Christ loved the church perfectly from day 1 but that's not how life seems to work there seems to be just a lot of ups and downs and i i just hope this would work in my life, but I also hoped it would work in your life and in my kids' lives as well. And sometimes I can begin to parent that way, where I think that if I just sit down and and we do this discipleship lesson and I I teach them, this is what it looks like to have self-control, and that if you don't have self-control, Scripture teaches us that you're going to be like a city left without... Well, so some of you have read that, that scripture. It, it's, it's wisdom. Wisdom is saying, have self control, because when you have self control, there's protection around your life. And so, my hope as a parent has been at times that I could just give my kids a Bible verse, or I could just give my kids this, this gospel to them, and that they would have these light bulb moments and they'd be like, Thank you, Dad. And their lives be radically changed. Or I can think that way when it comes to counseling. And so maybe you've sat in uh, my office and we've talked through different things. And there can just be this hope sometimes. Not just by me, but I feel it with those coming in that there's just sort of this magic bullet. Or magic scripture verse that just once you read it. Radically transforms you or your spouse or your kids or whatever it is you're working on just because you know it that it's going to change. I, I want this for us, I want this for me. I want really life to be easy like that where I do have my devotion and I am just a changed man for the rest of my life. And you read a book back there and you're just change all your marriage problems go away and all your parenting problems go away and you just you just become a a plus student in following Jesus Christ that that's what I would like really in my heart of hearts but I realized early on that's kind of not how God's created it to be. And that's not to say we don't read our Bibles. Don't hear me say that at all. There, there's, there's reading, there's discipleship, there's growth that has to take place where we take God's truth and we work it into our minds and then it finds its way into our hearts and, and then we got to live it out. But the reality is, the Lord has caused us to take this knowledge and, and live in a relationship with Him where He teaches us what these things mean as we wrestle in our relationship with Him and at the same time as we seek to put the flesh to death or the sins that remain in our lives. And so the Lord in His wisdom, and I would say this, He is perfectly wise in all of His ways. Knowing the best possible way to accomplish His good purposes has this perfect plan for our lives where he does take truth and he puts it into our minds and into our hearts and and we get to relate to him as we seek to live this out and and he begins to reveal himself through our failures and so we know that we're called to trust him with all of our hearts and to not lean on our own understandings and and that's our prayer But we really grow in that trust when we find ourselves in very difficult situations. When we find ourselves in those positions that we actually can't control the outcome and we're left with nothing else except to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. And so God uses failures. He uses hard things in our lives to help us grow in our faith. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Jonah, wrote the following in regards to our sin and trusting in the Lord and the need for experiences. He said, No human heart will learn its sinfulness and impotence by being told it is sinful. It will have to be shown, often through brutal experience. No human heart will dare to believe in such free costly grace unless it is is the only hope. It is a combination of hard circumstances, insight from the biblical gospel of atonement for sin, and prevailing prayer that can move us to wonder and amazement even in the darkest, deepest places. I've just found that to be true in my own life. I know when I read my Bible that I have sinned, And I fall short of the glory of God. I read Paul talking about his life in reference to himself being the greatest sinner that he knows. And I know that I can say it over and over again that none of us are perfect. Sin, though it might have been defeated on the cross, the power of it and its presence, the power of it's been broken, but its presence still remains. It remains in your life. It just does. It, it shows its ugly head at times and in different ways. I can say that to you all day long and you can nod your head. And the reality is you don't really understand just how much is still present. How ugly sin really is until the Lord sort of lifts the veil and you get to see it. And you have to walk through it. And, and what Tim Keller is getting at and what we're going to see in our text this morning is there's a reason for it because when we see how ugly our sin really is and typically how we see it is we usually do something really embarrassing something that we would never think that we would ever do and when we do it and we try to confess it or it's exposed we realize wow it's bigger than I thought because it's affected people that we love. And there's people who are having a hard time getting over it. and There's a lot of hurt. And the Lord uses that hard experience, not just to show you how sinful you are, how worthless you are, because we already know that to be true. He uses it typically to grow us in our faith and to ultimately help us understand how amazing his grace truly is. How amazing his grace is that Christ would die on a cross for all of our sins. And so these are truths I say over and over again. And I know you read about them, but it's typically what Tim Keller is getting at here is It's typically through the experience of life, knowing these truths and being able to live them out where grace ultimately becomes more and more amazing. When we really understand that Christ really died for real sinners and that we really are a sinner. And so his grace becomes amazing. Because we know we're forgiven of all of our sins. Because we know that Christ exhausted the wrath of God. Past, present, and future sins having been dealt with. And so we're going to see this sort of experience happen throughout the book of Jonah. But in the section that I just read, you begin to see Jonah beginning to grapple and wrestle with the grace of God and begin to understand it in a fresh way but to get Jonah to that place what we read is the man had to be swallowed by a great fish the man had to live three days and three nights in a fish the Lord had to take him to a low place in life for him to realize just how dependent he is upon God And how great God's grace is in his life. And so we're going to look at this section that I read. And we're going to break it down into three parts. Part one, we see that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up and save Jonah from drowning. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So after Jonah was thrown off the ship, if you remember from last week, or if you just look a few verses ahead, he was thrown off the ship into the sea. We we're not told how long he was left in the sea sort of fighting for his life before this great fish came along and swallowed him up and saved him. But we do know from the text this morning that, that he, he did spend some time in the sea. He did spend some time fighting for his life that this great fish didn't just show up and make his life better immediately. Jonah was left to struggle in the raging sea. And eventually he found himself slipping down under the water to the bottom of the sea where he found himself trapped before the Lord appointed this great fish to come along at the right time to save this man's life. Now the word appointed here in this verse, it's an important word for us to understand as, as it tells us, just like the storm that came that stopped the ship from moving forward wasn't by chance that this great fish swimming by just happened to find Jonah at the bottom of the sea at just the right moment. This this was not a sort of chance encounter. The Lord's very clear in his word here. The Lord appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord appointed this great fish to save Jonah's life. And again, what we learn here, and I think what the Lord is really trying to teach us in many ways throughout this book, is that he's always in control. He's always in control. He's the one who's reigning and ruling over all things, whether it's the wind and the waves, or it happens to be this fish Or it happens to be Jonah's life. He's the one who has all authority and all power over all of his creation. And he's always at work in all things, using all things, even a great fish, for the good of those who love him. So make no mistake here. God is the one who is always in control of the world that we live in. He's at work in all of your successes. Every good moment of every good day that you have, it's God who's at work and who's at, in control of those things. And He's also, this is the one we wrestle with. We, I think at times, we can accept a God being at work in all things when we win. When we get the promotion. When we have the baby. When... It, Our loved one is healed. We we bless the Lord for that. But what we also learn here and throughout God's words, he's also at work in all things when we fail. When you don't get the promotion, but instead you get fired. The Lord's at work in that moment as well. When your loved one doesn't get healed, but suddenly passes away, the Lord's at work in that as well. It's harder, I get it, it's harder... But just because it's harder or it doesn't make us feel good at the time, it doesn't mean that God stopped being in control. It's in those moments where we're faced to wrestle with, do we really believe God is who he is or not? Can we accept him in the wins and can we accept him in the losses to be the same good and gracious God? Though we don't always understand the good that he's at work doing those things, it never means that he's he's not good in that situation. We might not understand it, but we do know from his word that he is at work for our good, and he's always at work, and he's always in control. There's nothing in this world that we'll ever encounter that is outside of the sovereign reign and rule of our God. Nothing. Nothing. This is one of those truths, when I was starting in the beginning, where, where it's just a truth. I'm telling you this. I've read books on this over and over again. I see it in God's Word. It's really clear in Romans eight twenty eight. Read that verse. It's very clear. But it's one of those things the Lord, in my life, and I think in yours as well, He works into us, that takes it from our mind to our hearts, as we actually walk through really difficult things. And have to walk by faith and believe, okay, Lord, I know that you're at work in this for my good. I don't understand how. I wouldn't, I don't, sometimes I don't even agree with what he's doing. I have to wrestle with that. It's true. I wrestle with it. Well, I see, I'll have these conversations. Okay, Lord, I know you're at work for my good in this situation, but I don't think this is good. I don't see how this is good. In fact, I would do it a different way. These are real conversations that I have with the Lord, sometimes out loud, sometimes privately. But in the end, there's sort of this just submission. But Lord, I know what your word says. I don't necessarily have to understand it. Your ways are not always my ways. And you know what's better than I am because I'm not God. I see life from this perspective. The Lord sees it from his perspective. He reigns and rules over all things. He knows how this thing ends. And so we trust him. He's at work in All things. And he is a wise God. He knows the best possible way to always accomplish his good purposes. And so when you think about being productive, God is perfectly productive. Think about that. Perfectly productive. He does the right thing at the right time, always with the right amount of effort, using the right resources. It's just true. None of us are like that. And I share all that with you because it's helpful to think about it in that way when we think about the story of Jonah's life, a man running from the grace of God, a man called to preach the grace of God to God's people and gladly did it because it was successful, wildly successful. And then the Lord finds him and says, okay, I want you to preach that same grace to the Ninevites. Enemies of God's people, brutal murderers and torturers of God's people. And he's just like, not me. And so he begins to run. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. And so he he finds himself running. The Lord stops him, throws him into the sea, and, and he's about to drown. But we have a sovereign God who's at work. And he sends this great fish to swallow Jonah up. Before he breathed his last breath. See, the Lord could have just let him go. Could have just let him sort of be trapped at the bottom of the sea and breathe his last breath for nobody ever to see again. But the Lord uses a great fish, finds him at the bottom of the sea to save him, to get his attention, to show him a little bit more about his grace. And so this leads us to part two. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Verse 1, chapter 2, he says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. And so he's going to kind of walk us through his prayer. This is what I prayed in the belly of the well, and then what we're going to see in this prayer, he's going to kind of go back to when he was in the water and his thoughts that the Lord used because he was drowning, he was about to die, and just how he continued to to find himself distraught and, and just sort of at his last breath, and then he turns to the Lord. And so what we have here, though, this could possibly be the first time That Jonah has actually prayed to the Lord since he began running from the presence of the Lord. And so if you remember when he was on the ship, the captain came to him and said, Get up, you sleeper, and pray. And he didn't do that. He didn't cry out to the Lord in repentance and ask the Lord to stop this. Instead, the Lord said, you got to be thrown off from the ship. And they threw him off the ship. And so this could possibly be the first time that he's actually turning back to the Lord And crying out to God since he started running away from the Lord. And the Lord heard Jonah crying for help as he was drowning. John McCain, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, God's answer is what faith confidently expects in his distress. And it is not disappointed. So think about this. You're Jonah. You're drowning. You're in this raging sea and you've been running away from God, but God has not allowed for Jonah to to run so far that he's just ignored Jonah. Instead, Jonah, in this sort of last-ditch effort, turns to the Lord and cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. How do we know he answered him? He's in the belly of the whale. That's a whole different story. The Lord heard his voice, and what John McKay is saying is, is, that's what we want, don't we? That's what we want. When we find ourselves in the midst of distress, in the midst of great disappointment, in the midst of almost losing our hope, we cry out to the Lord and faith, what he says here, confidently expects God to hear. Confidently expects the God who's reigning over all things to look down and see and have open ears for his people that he might respond favorably. And so God did not give up on Jonah, even though Jonah was trying his best to give up on God. You see, God's grace is far more abundant than our sins. It's far more abundant than our sins. God never tires of being gracious and kind towards his people. It's it's one of those things. Just take that, put that in the back of your mind, because I guarantee... You will be tempted to give up on someone. You will be tempted, if you're a parent, this will happen quite a bit, you will be tempted just kind of like, go do your own thing. But that's not our God. That's not how our God works. Our God is gracious, and he never tires of being good towards his people. He doesn't grow weary. Of doing good. We grow weary. That's why in scripture we have this command to not grow weary in doing good. Because we're going to be tempted to do that. But our God does not grow weary of doing good. He doesn't grumble and complain against us. When we continue to ignore him and stop walking by faith and want to do what we want to do. That's not who our God is. Our God is perfectly faithful. Our God is perfectly loving. Our God perfectly gives us the right amount of grace and mercy and He's perfectly patient with us so that His good purposes for us will actually come to fruition. And so He's perfectly patient with us. Like we see with Jonah. He allowed Jonah to go as far as He wanted Jonah to go. He allowed Jonah to sink as low as He wanted Jonah to sink. And then he appointed that great fish to save him. Well, Jonah goes on and he prays. Verse 3, he says, "...for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." So again, he's in the belly of the well and he's recounting his time in the sea before he was swallowed by this fish. And notice how he just—he relates all that has happened to him up to this point did not happen by chance. The way he looks at it is there is a sovereign God at work in his life. He acknowledges here that it was God who cast him into the deep. Now if you go back and you read, what you'll see is the mariners were the ones that picked him up and actually threw him into the raging sea. But when he recounts this, and he's sitting there, and he's thinking about this, and he's, he's alone, and he's before the Lord, he just says, Lord, you did this to me. You cast me into the heart of the sea. See, he sees past these mariners to a sovereign God at work in all things. He recognizes that it was God's waves And billows that were passing over him and beating him down. None of this, again, happened by chance. He knows that our God is not a passive observer. Just sort of standing back and letting nature sort of do its thing. He's in control of all things. And as Jonah was on the brink of drowning, he tells us how he felt. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. That's how he felt. He tried to run from the presence of God. And now he finds himself in this moment, and he's like, I'm driven away from your sight. So he's kind of getting what he wants, and and he's beginning to realize, I don't really want this. I don't really want to be away from your presence. And I would say, especially as he's drowning or about to at the bottom of the sea. And so he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He felt alone and far away from the Lord, and now he wanted to be with the Lord. His running seems to have stopped. John McKay again writes the following. He says, his distress caused hope to increase, not diminish. His affliction became a source of good to him, and he realized that the Lord had intervened to rescue him and that he could be confident that this meant there was a future role for him. Let me read that first sentence again. He said, his distress caused hope to increase, not diminish. I think in some ways that takes time. If you just think through your own hard things that you've wrestled with, like that, that's what the Lord does in, in the lives of those who love him. He, he's growing our faith. And so hard things, distress, I, they're not easy. That's the reason they're called hard things. But But they can either cause our hope to increase or we can in our stubbornness and hard-heartedness, can begin to run away even further from the Lord. But what we see here happening in this story is this distress, this hard thing in Jonah's life caused hope to increase. See, God's at work. Again, look at these next two verses, 5 and 6. Jonah writes the following. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. I love these details. I love these details in, in Jonah's life here. His time in the raging sea really was not this child book story. It is, but, but not this. He's not this sort of man kind of floating at the top and waiting for this big fish to come. He's a man that's exhausted. He's been running from God. He's now in this raging sea, waves crashing from every side, pounding him down, fighting for his life. And then they go take him down further and further to the point where he almost reaches bottom. And the weeds have so surrounded him that that they're choking him out. He can't even move anymore. He feels like he's actually in prison, that there's bars down there, and they've held him down, locked him up to die. But the Lord shows up. The Lord is faithful. The Lord sends this great fish. The Lord saved him. He tells us that the Lord brought up his life from the pit. Now, here's what I'd say. You could say that this was Jonah's rock bottom. You know what I'm talking about? There's just these moments in our lives where where you you feel like, okay, this is it. I can't can't get any lower. And it's usually in these rock bottom experiences where, where the Lord uses them to open our eyes to see his amazing grace. And we see this happening in Jonah's life. Tim Keller writes the following, he says, It's only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you're finally open to learning how to completely depend upon God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is actually all you have. This is one of those things I wish... That we could learn just by reading that quote. But anybody who's ever experienced hard things, you know what it's like to realize Jesus is all you have. There's things that you might want to accomplish, and you realize you don't have the resources to do it. It Might be your marriage, might be falling apart or a relationship you have with somebody, and you've you've done your best and, and you've you've thought you could do whatever it is you could do and control certain things. And you just realize you can't do it. Or changing a kid's heart. You've extended as much grace as you could possibly extend. And you thought you've extended it in every way. And and your kid's not changed. What do you do in that moment? Well, I think it's one of these moments where you realize you can't do it. Only Jesus can. And it comes down to then, it's like, are we just going to, continue in our own efforts, try to change something, or are we really going to trust the Lord to do what the Lord does? Are we really going to depend upon the Lord, not just for those, those big things, really what the Lord's after are we going to depend upon Him for everything? The next breath we breathe. We're going to depend upon Him for putting food on the table, for growing our family. For finding a spouse for you. Whatever it is, the Lord has called us to trust him in all things. And oh, is he trustworthy. He goes on, verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you... What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So again, he's, he's going back to, this is, this is what it was like as, as I was drowning. And he even makes this sort of insightful and truthful statement where he just says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Again, this is one of those things. Let's trust him here. Because that's what he was doing. Instead of worshiping the Lord and doing what the Lord had called him to do and going to Nineveh, he ran after something else. He began to worship some false god, we'll call that self, wanting to do what he wanted to do, and and his, his... Sort of reflection on that is this, those who pay regard to vain idols, those who worship false gods, those who do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and give themselves to 100% depending upon Him, here's the result. Their hope and their steadfast love is lost. It's lost. There's no hope in trusting in a false God. It might provide something temporarily, but in the end, it's not eternal. And so he's, he's working through and he's beginning to see the grace of God at work in his life. And you begin to see this repentance. He's, he's turning away from trusting in himself. So he repents of his idolatry here by shouting, With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. And I will do what you have called me to do because... Salvation belongs to the Lord. So there's repentance going on here. The Lord took him to the bottom of the sea, where he almost drowned, has him in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights to ultimately change his heart. Again, think about sovereign God, all wise in all of his ways. He could have sent anybody to Nineveh. And just let Jonah drown. But we have a God who's willing to wait on that. To go after the heart of this man who's running away from him. A sovereign God who's at work in all things. And Jonah just says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Meaning, no one saves themselves. When we try to do this for ourselves, we, we end up like Jonah. Trapped in our own unbelief, drowning in a sea of sins. You see, we're 100% dependent upon the Lord to save us. And salvation, it's a gift from God. It's all by his grace and his grace alone. And once Jonah finally gets this, God releases him from the belly of this fish. Part three, and this is a short one. The fish vomited Jonah out on dry land. So after spending three days, three nights in the belly of this great fish, wrestling with God through prayer, Jonah just tells us, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now we don't know exactly where this is, but I'm going to have to assume it's probably pretty close to where he eventually, or first got into the ship, because there's a repentance going on. He's turning from running from the Lord. The Lord swallows him up, wrestles with him. He's repenting, and the Lord just spits him out back on the land. and says, okay, go do your work. Follow him. See, we see God's grace, and we see his mercy. We see God willing to be at work in all things in Jonah's life, changing his heart. This is a gift. Showing his steadfast love to Jonah. Someone who doesn't deserve it. How grace and mercy work. And our God is not just gracious and merciful towards Jonah. He's he's gracious and he's merciful towards us. At work in all things in our lives. Showing his steadfast love daily to us. In closing, I just want to ask us to think about three questions. And I'm not going to answer these questions. I'm just going to share these questions and ask you to think through it in light of what we just read. Number one, how has the Lord helped you see the seriousness of your own sins so that you would be more amazed by His grace? Again, He took Jonah to the bottom of the sea, put him in the belly of a whale, that he might see the sins in his own heart, but even more the amazing grace at work in his life. Number two, are there any idols in your life that you need to repent of and turn back to faith, faithfully following Jesus Christ? So what's behind that is, is what else are you worshiping? Is there something in your life that you love more than God? Because what Jonah was teaching us there was that, that those who love something, an idol more than they love God, They lose or they forsake all hope and steadfast love. And then number three. What evidences of grace in your life can you thank God for today? What evidences of God's grace in your life can you thank him for today? And I would just say his grace abounds. It abounds in your life. He's at work daily in your life, providing, protecting, surprising and delighting you with his mercy and his steadfast love. The question is, how can we thank him for that? In closing, let us pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being at work in all things. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to live in our place and to die on a cross for our sins, exhausting the wrath that we deserve and instead blessing us with eternal life. We thank you for your spirit that you fill us with and the gifts that you give to us. We thank you for the mercy that you show to us. And Lord, we just ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us and you would help us to see your grace and your mercy, Lord, you'd help us to repent of sin and turn back to trusting you with our hearts and not leaning on our own understanding. Lord, would you guide us and would you lead us in your truth? And Lord, would you protect us as we leave here? Lord, we're so grateful for the fellowship that we get to have and the time in your word. But as we leave, would you hide this word in our heart? And would you protect us until we get to meet again? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Um, As you leave, may the Lord bless you. May he pour out his spirit upon you. Have a great Sunday.